Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 31 of the Dogato Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and how to take action. In this season, we've been looking at the ways that our cultural viewpoints, our church traditions, our theological backgrounds, and our personal experiences impact our view of the Bible. And our lens of scripture and God can also largely be shaped by any sort of trauma that we've experienced. And this includes trauma inflicted on us by our spiritual leaders and or churches. In today's podcast, we're honored to learn from Dr. Tama Bryant Davis about interpersonal trauma and the Bible. She talks with us about ways to overcome the silent stigma of mental health at church, ways to see gender oppression in our denominations, how to better read and understand traumatic stories in the Bible, especially when the offender is seen as the biblical hero, and ways that we can better love and support the trauma victims in our own life. Dr. Tama also provides us key insights into ways to read several traumatic Bible stories, including the story of Hagar, the trauma and silencing of Tamar, and seeing Bathsheba as victim instead of David's seductress. These disturbing stories in scripture are tough and they're not easy for any of us to read. Dr. Tama Bryant Davis shares powerful insights on the types of questions we should be asking ourselves when we encounter trauma in our Bibles. Her empathetic and healing approach will forever change the way you read and understand these stories. Dr. Tama Bryant Davis is a licensed psychologist, an ordained minister, and sacred artist who has worked nationally and globally to provide relief and empowerment to marginalized persons. Dr. Tama is a professor at Pepperdine University, is a past president of the Society for the Psychology of Women, and her contributions to psychological research, policy, and practice have been honored by national and regional psychological associations. I pray that this conversation encourages all of us to become more empathetic readers of our Bibles and help us to become more loving and more caring to those who've endured trauma. Please be aware that this podcast episode includes conversations on assault and abuse in the Bible, which may be hurtful and or upsetting. You can catch the YouTube video from today's podcast and an archive of all past episodes on the blog at mikedelgado.org. Here's our conversation. I wanted to start by asking you, so I watch lots of different TED Talks, and I love listening to speakers, and especially dynamic speakers, and you are by far one of my favorite speakers, the way that you connect with audiences, Thanks. like you're on stage talking to massive groups of people, but you have this ability to connect individually, and I feel like so much empathy from listening to you speak. Mm. And so this is why it's such an honor for me to chat with you. And I wanted to start off by asking you about what have you kind of worked on personally to just become a great communicator and be able to touch people's hearts? Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate that. And I'll say, uh, is I think it's not by accident or coincidence that I'm the daughter of two ministers. (laughs) So... Growing up, you know, uh, just seeing them do what they do, you know, and sharing and uh, communicating. My dad was the pastor, but my mom had a women's ministry and would, you know, just bring together groups of women for kind of regular gatherings. But she would also put on these retreats and conventions. And it was always just like such a healing place, you know, of 
and, and seeing like the vulnerability and the truth, you know, as opposed to uh, performance. And I think that's one of the things they found in um, research that looks at people who have turned away from church are people who, you know, who don't like performance, right? Who are looking for real connect. And people still want community. They want connection. They want like truth telling. The other stuff is is kind of empty. So I will say, you know, probably in part, it is, um, you know, growing up, seeing it done. And then another part of it is I am a trauma survivor. And so when I'm talking, it's not just as like someone who read the book, right, or took the class. Um, but, you know, my, my own experience definitely, you know, makes it heart led instead of uh, head only. Yeah, well, I, I feel the connection. And like the very first time I heard you speak, it was a video that I caught on YouTube. You were speaking at Fuller around about trauma and the Bible. And the topic fascinated me. And when I started to hear you present and just how much care you had in even approaching the topic to create a safe space, just you're being hyper aware of the different feelings and perspectives that are in the room and the way that you kind of set the stage, I thought was very powerful. And I wanted to ask a little bit about your, I guess your church experiences growing up. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned both your your parents were were ministers. You watched that being modeled at church. I'm curious about the things that, um, from growing up in a church setting, how that benefited you, but also yeah. maybe some of the things that may have hurt you spiritually. Sure, absolutely. So um, in our uh, church tradition, so I'm African Methodist Episcopal. Um, so the beliefs or doctrine is similar to the Methodist Church, um, but it was founded by uh, Richard Allen in the aftermath of like discrimination within the church, which already kind of sets the tone of like sometimes these places that are supposed to be sanctuary or healing can also, you know, to get to your question, be places of harm. And so it being really important for people to, to come away from places feeling honored, feeling seen being heard, being celebrated. Um, And my dad's approach to ministry as the pastor and in general in our denomination, in a lot of ways, the expectation, I think this is a part of Black church tradition as well, is more holistic. Um, And so the expectation for ministers and ministry is not just like Sunday for a couple of hours. Right. That, you know, I mentioned my mom doing women's ministry. We had like the youth group. We had an AA degree program. We had an outreach center where you give away clothes and shoes. We had like jobs training on Saturdays. We had voter registration. It's like community life. Right. And, you know, we'd have like these cultural fairs. And so it wouldn't not only be like uh, addressing racism, but just like celebrating your culture and that not being like anti-Christ, right? Some people try to promote this notion that if you're Christian, you're colorblind, but it's like God created us. So why do we need to like hide what we come in, right? That um, So um, I would say it benefited me by giving me a sense of community that was larger uh, than myself or even just my immediate family, because you all know especially when you go through your teen years, sometimes the last person you want to talk to are your parents, 
but I would have, you know, like a whole array of people I could talk to it and we would call them other mothers, but you, everybody's an aunt, right? There's aunt Cynthia, aunt Joni, you know, all these people, they're not, <laughs> they're not your blood relatives, but it's your church family. And, uh, you know, and then everybody's, you know, calling each other cousin. And so, you know, it gave like this sense of foundation of like, we're not in it by ourselves, right? So that whatever your question or issue, there's somebody in here who can relate um, in some ways. And I think also, because uh, some people will say, oh, as a, as a pastor's kid, did you have to go every week or did they force you? But to be honest, it wasn't even a conversation where they, I had to be forced because that's where my friends were. So it wasn't this idea of like, I don't want to go when they made me go. It was like, I'm I'm going to see my friends, right? And so I was on the choir or, you know, the youth group. And um, so a beautiful sense of, of community. Um, and then when you talk about, you know, perhaps the harms that come uh, in those places, um, I think in, in general, there has been a real lack of awareness, acknowledgement, respect for mental health. And um, often it comes from a place of not knowing. And I'll say that as someone who did the Masters of Divinity. Um, and so I, I try to be a bridge between these, uh, you know, faith community and mental health community. Because um, I find if people are outside of those communities and try to tell you something, you know, a lot of church people aren't going to hear it. Because they're going to say, well, like, you don't love God anyway, so why should we listen to you? Um, and, and so I think traditionally in the church, there is oft, often this pressure for silence or for pretending things are fine. This equating of if you love God, you'll always be happy. Right. And if you're if you ever have any despair in your life, that somehow that's a bad indication of your faith. And so, you know, I've heard those uh, kinds of messages. I've heard people in pulpits say, you know, I didn't need therapy. All I needed was Jesus. And people saying, amen. You know, meanwhile, I'm surrounded by people who I know are like struggling, who don't, you know, are left with questions after the son committed suicide or left with a challenge over the grief of the mother. And it's been seven years and they're still stuck in that place, but not having felt like they were given permission uh, to name it. Right. And to know like that that's not a judgment about how God feels about you or how you feel about God. Um, you know, we often in church, we like these little sayings. And uh, so one of those sayings is like, I'm too blessed to be stressed. And the reality is you can have blessings and have stress at the same time. Um, and so I think that uh, probably is the, the major, I guess, depending in terms of the work I ended up choosing to do would be like a major um, area of harm, I would say, is the silencing, you know, suffering in silence or not knowing you can ask for help in addition to asking God. So, you know, we often say you can pray to God and sometimes the answer God gives you is through another person. So it doesn't have to all be like a supernatural encounter, right? Some of it is. Um, but it, you know, God works through people. And um, so that has been, has been a big part of my um, intention around these issues. And, and even the silence around trauma, 
Um, and then I would say also in churches, um, a lot of gender oppression, you know, the messages that people promote about girls and women can be really harmful. You know, I remember I was attending a church and the pastor had never preached any text about women, had never celebrated women. And then he announced he was doing this Bible study series and he was using that book, The Bad Girls of the Bible. And it's like chapter after chapter of like highlighting women in the Bible who did bad things. And it was like, what? Like, you know, I'd rather you skip the series if like, so it's either silence or like the bad example of who we don't want to be. Um, so those are our issues that are harmful. Yeah, no doubt. And it's interesting too, like how sometimes the denomination we're in or the church culture, culture that we're in, what you just touched on silence and silencing people who, um, need to be speaking, like addressing these feelings. Um, but sometimes, yeah, like you said, like there's this stigma of like, well, if you are addressing anxiety or mental health issues, it's a lack of faith. And mm-hmm. then it's like you just said, it's complicated by gender because in some church traditions, they think that women shouldn't even be speaking mm-hmm. from a leadership role. And that further complicates things. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I feel so sad for especially women in those cultures where you're not allowed to speak and also you're being silenced in so many different ways. Meanwhile, you're hurting, you're suffering. You want to vocalize your pain. You want someone to talk to, but that church culture you're in is not allowing you to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, some people have then equated like in order to, um, to celebrate myself or be at home with myself then requires I leave the church. And what a painful, uh, you know, conclusion. But, you know, based on where some people have been, it's been so toxic that it's become, instead of leaving that one particular place, believing that place represents all places. And I remember um, I was doing an interview or podcast with someone and um, the person was someone who grew up in church and the experience, her experience of it was very like oppressive and marginalizing. And she said, wow, I wish like I had gone to the kind of church you're talking about because all these kind of warm, fuzzy things I was saying did not connect at all with her experience. And I think that's also been an important piece of my awareness when you were talking about being tuned into the range of people in the audience is I think People who have had lovely experiences have a hard time leaving space for people who have had horrific experiences. And the other side is true, too. People for whom it has been terrible um, can often have little belief in the possibility that for some people it hasn't been this terrible, uh, 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 oppressive system, that some people have experienced liberation in those spaces. Um, So it's the reality that, you know, it's people. And when people are involved, you're going to have a, a range of uh, experiences in those places. You know, in that lecture that I listened to, as you chatted about how trauma can impact our view of scripture and our view of God, I was very moved by it. And it really opened my eyes to um, a different perspective that I hadn't read before. And 
you spoke specifically about the story of Hagar. And that was like, I had to like read, I had to go back to my Bible to read that story because as you were talking about it, I like, I was remembering little bits of it, but as you started to actually talk about that story and the trauma inflicted on Hagar, like it wasn't computing. I was like, how did I miss this? How did I miss this? And I went back to scripture to go read it. And then I was looking at various commentaries that just skipped over. Yeah what you were addressing. I was wondering maybe you can kind of talk about that story because it, it hit me hard. Yes. Thank you for raising it. And it goes with uh, the importance of us always asking ourselves, like, who's telling the story? And I think as Christians, um, we can get uncomfortable with that question because we, we say, like, God wrote it all. But we are, we're human beings that like are doing the writing. It's like with Sunday sermons. Right. It's like, yes, they, you know, you can have like 20 preachers all with like at the root, a God inspired message. But it is it is coming through a vessel who has some lived experiences, some opinions, some perspectives. And that's not erased in the telling of the story. And so, um, you know, who gets centered or celebrated in the story um, is that like it's like when historians say, you know, um, hunters will always be glorified until lions get to tell their story. Right. So it's like if you told the same story from the perspective of a lion, we have a very different scenario here. So, you know, for Hagar, you know, um, she's really presented as um, not a sacred um, God chosen being. It's like um, Sarah and Abraham are the special ones and are the the center story in the way that it's told. And that, um, you know, they're told they're going to have a child. It's taken a while. They're getting older. And so then, you know, the wife, who would be the mistress of the house, the madam of the house, if you want to talk about um, Hagar's role in the quote unquote family, decides that um, Abraham should have sex with Hagar in order for them to have a child. And um, there, like, it's not a question, right? Hey, and, and the whole thing of, uh, is, if consent cannot be denied, it cannot be given. If I cannot say no, you can't say I agree to it. And some people want to jump over that because they say, well, during that day and time, that was the norm. Well, because something is normative, does that make it godly or healthy or right? You know, that's how people want to skip over slavery and say, it's not that people were being brutalized. This was the norm. So if it's normal to whip people, to hang people, to have uh, un- non-consensual sex with children um, who are of African descent, because everybody else is doing it. Like, you know, we say that to our kids all the time, just because everybody else jumps all off a roof, does that make it the right thing to do? So something being common does not make it acceptable. Something being common does not make it a God idea. And so, um, you know, the way it gets presented as problematic is just Sarah not trusting God 
So it becomes a thing of like, it's, a, it's an example of her lack of faith, but never about the harm on this person. Uh, and then as a trauma survivor, you know, when the story goes on, it says that, uh, you know, Hagar starts having a bad attitude, right? And I've heard even women preach this and say, yeah, we all need to stay humble because, you know, you can get a get a, above yourself and, you know, uh, think you're something special because she was able to be pregnant and and uh, Sarah wasn't. And, you know, it's it it takes the power dynamic out of the story. It's as if to say um, these are two equal women uh, and one was fertile and one wasn't. And the one that was fertile was looking down on the one who wasn't. The one who's pregnant didn't ask to be in this situation to begin with, right? And so uh, when you are um, being required to have uh, uh, to let someone sexually enter you without your permission, that's going to have an emotional impact. So if she's now walking around the house angry, sad, irritable, the biblical response, the Christ-centered response is stop being mad. That's not the Christ-centered response to trauma survivors. But I will say I have noticed in my work um, that people have more compassion if you show up looking sad than if you're angry. And I think as Christians, we need to leave space for, um, for outrage. Right. Some things are outrageous. And so maybe people who read the text would feel differently if she was crying. But I think some people still would be like, you know, she needs to not cry. And thank God she has a position in the house or what have you. Um, But we want to be mindful about our judgments in terms of how people respond to their pain and to even see people at all and not just center ourselves or center the people who are called the quote unquote heroes. Yeah. You know, after you, you preached on that at Fuller and I went to go back to read that story again, cause it didn't compute as you're telling the story. I was like, what? Like re- record scratch. I need to go back and read the story with this new lens. Yes. She's raped. Yes. She's like put out of the house into the desert with a little bit of water with a bit. Like it didn't make any sense to me. And then on top of it, and you also point this out in your, in your, um, in your lecture about father Abraham and Sarah, they're like the heroes Mm -hmm. and we celebrate father Abraham. We sing the songs about father Abraham. Meanwhile, this is the most destructive, horrifying story um, of how a woman, a, a sl- enslaved woman yes. has been raped and then sent on her way. And it, it's just horrifying. Yes. And it highlights, you know, the experience of many contemporary survivors who have been abused by whether church heroes or governmental heroes or community leaders, um, where people will rally around the celebrities. People will rally around these figures. In psychology, it's called a halo effect, where when you're really good at one thing, people assume that you're good in every other area of your life. 
So it's like if someone comes forward and says a pastor or a singer or an athlete um, or a Boy Scout troop leader um, abuse them or a politician, you know, then people say, oh, they must be lying. They want fame. They want money. And, you know, in these stories, people never get like a parade. Like you don't get all these great rewards by coming out and telling your story. You often get demonized and rejected. And um, and people will also misuse scripture and say, um, touch not my anointed. That's a big one they throw out in the church. If you have been harmed by a church leader, you know, you better watch yourself. You know, you can't speak um, negatively about the man of God. So um, it is then not only the violate the original violation, but the community violation of not only disbelief, but continued adoration, celebration, promotion of people who are engaging in harmful behaviors. Yeah, that's like the just an example of re-traumatized, you know, being re-traumatized right. again and now by your own community for not yeah. being believed or like you said in a church context, you're going against the anointed one. How dare you? Because mm-hmm. um, we don't believe you. And that's right. like a doubly hurtful and re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. Um, as you like, as you read scripture and you're just very sensitive to trauma, mm-hmm. I'm curious about other things in scripture, other stories that mm-hmm. stick out to you mm-hmm. as examples of trauma yeah. and things that we often overlook. Right. Well, the, the big one that I, you know, created this model on is the, the crucifixion. And I think people don't really look at Jesus as a trauma survivor. You know, they'll say he freely gave. And it's like, did you skip over the garden where he's weeping and begging not to have to do this? Right. So this whole like he wasn't like enthusiastically going to that cross. Right. He was crying to the point of blood. Right. Trembling, falling on the way, you know, trying to carry the cross. Um, even when my son goes to a Christian school and when he came home and said, you know, I didn't know Jesus had been stabbed. And I mentioned that to my parents and they said, well, we always say like pierced in the side, but had never languished it that way. Right. Um, so like to really take in the horror of it and not in just this romantic way, because sometimes people are giving like these graphic details in these Easter sermons, right? With kids sitting there and it's, you know, it's like a horror. It's a, it's, I mean, this thing is, it's a horror. And to like really, um, look at, um, his, when I say his recovery process is, you know, the first one I, I mentioned is, you know, tomb time of Jesus just, you know, taking time to be still, they say like, oh, you know, God, you know, as the son of God, he could just like jump up. And sometimes we do need just that stillness um, to kind of wrap my mind around like what just happened. Right. What? And also I'll just mention one other, which is being selective about who we share our story with and who we spend time with when we're in those vulnerable places, because not everyone is emotionally or spiritually equipped to walk us through a storm. You know, and so Jesus chose at first to appear to the women, then, uh, you know, to the disciples. Um, a big pressure point 
that people often um, jump over. Some people will say, especially church people, that the only step to trauma recovery is forgiveness. And like that's so missing (laughs) the whole journey. Um, And what I just like to say is, you know, yes, Jesus gave the soldiers, but he didn't go hang out with them because he knew they would kill him again if they had the chance. So this, you know, sometimes forced reconciliation, especially I'll say for survivors of domestic violence, where people will say, you know, you just have to pray and go home. The way I've heard uh, someone articulated is a lot of pastors priority is to save the marriage, even if it means losing the people, right? It's like, you know, this is it's like not even seeing what is happening. Uh, so you'll have these celebrations of people standing up and say like 25 years, but like people who know the story know what that 25 years is, right? So um, yeah, having space and places to rest in the aftermath of trauma and having people who can support you through your healing process um, is a is a big example. Um, I also like to tell the story of Tamar, um, who was sexually assaulted um, by her brother. And uh, you know, the trickery in that it it was it was a setup, it was intentional. Because a lot of times people try to act like either it's just like strangers in alleys or that like it's just a miscommunication. They didn't mean it, right? No, this was a plan. It was a plot. It was malicious. And even this languaging where he says he loved her so much. Well, this is not how we treat someone who we love. And um, and then her brother, Absalom, got it, you know, we'll say like half right in the sense of after the assault, he says to her, come and stay with me. But then he says, and do not speak about this again. So that's the silencing where then we never hear about her again. And many of us are trapped in these places of silence where family, community, church says, we're here for you. We are your sanctuary. We are your refuge. But don't don't talk about stuff like that. It makes people uncomfortable, right? So we want to be careful if we're silencing, we actually are not providing sanctuary. Yeah. And I'm wondering how, like, I I struggle with some of these passages, like how they're presented, how we're being told the story happened. Because like what you just shared, like someone's being silenced or they're just moving on, they're ignoring the trauma. Mm -hmm. They're, They're ignoring the evil that took place and they're just moving on with the story and you kind of uh, build some sort of uh, allegory or some like positive message out of that. But like, no, there's like real trauma, real pain, real evil here. That's right. That's sometimes not addressed fully in scripture. You're just kind of like reading the next passage. I'm curious, like, like I struggle with this. I'm curious, like as you approach these things, cause you're, you're, you're a serious student in the Bible. You're an ordained minister. As you are reading these passages, how do you kind of interpret and yeah. how do you kind of deal with those things? I like to one first sit with like uh, the pain of it and to name that for the people who are present, whether it's a retreat or a service um, to say, you know, the, the scripture writers don't tell us what it was like for her in that house. But have any of you ever been in a place where you couldn't talk about the thing that was breaking your heart? 
right? And then talking about, you know, what are the different things that people have felt in those spaces? And then so that we don't like leave it at the devastation is like, you know, what, you know, what would have been liberating for her brother to have said? You know, what did we need to hear in those moments that maybe God spoke to her, but to hear it from her flesh and blood, right? Because her dad didn't show up for her. The brother who did show up didn't have the emotional capacity to hear and um, and then thinks he's doing the right thing for her to, then, you know, go and kill the rapist. Um, but is, uh, you know, some of the research that we have found around justice is that when people are interviewed, um, the overwhelming majority of people are not looking for, quote unquote, revenge. Um, they want safety and they want acknowledgement from the, the people who are in power, whether that's the courts, the parents, the whoever, that you have been wronged, that this is unacceptable. And then a sense that this person is not going to be permitted to continue to do this action, whether against you or against other people. Um, and so, you know, we talk about this survivor centered perspective of, you know, when you are a family member or a friend of someone who's been hurt to not dictate their process for them, but to ask people, you know, what, how can I be helpful? What would you like? And sometimes they may not know immediately. Sometimes they do know. Right. Um, and so, you know, to to tease out what's not there. And so but, you know, I'm, I'm honest in my sharing. A lot of times the way I've heard people phrase it uh, is um, in my theological imagination. Right. Uh, so, you know, we're, so I'm telling people what is in the story because we're going to we read the scripture. Right. But now let's look at like what's not there. You know, what do we imagine it would be like or what could have happened? What could have helped um, to bring some sense of resolution? Oh, I, I love that. That is super helpful to ask those questions mm-hmm. and create dialogue around what should have happened, would have would have would have been a, a better response from the offender. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's, that's a, what a what a creative and helpful way to take those passages. Yeah. And that was one of the things that was liberating for me. I can't remember if I said it at the Fuller talk, um, but my godmother is Renita Weems, who is a womanist theologian. And I heard her preaching one day and she said, um, this is a suspect text. And I said, what? Like, I didn't know. Can you say that? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Right. I didn't know. Again. And so what she what she elaborated, it was just the part about it leaves a lot of questions. Right. It should raise your eyebrows of like, wait, what happened? Right. Is it like, is this the whole story? Like, what what am I not getting here? Because like you're saying, suddenly it can just jump to something else. You're on to the next chapter and don't know, like, what happened to those people? Right. Um, so there was a because. I think often we equate questions with non-believers. So that's why people get so nervous. As soon as someone asks a question, you know, supposed to be because the Bible says so or because pastor said so. And don't sit too long with a question because then you won't believe. Like, is it real belief if we have not wrestled with it at all, have not thought about it at all when it has just been memorization? Um, and so to give ourselves, you know, what I've heard people talk about. Um, to not be so sure of all the answers, 
right? Because I think, you know, in churches, we often feel like, especially if you're the minister, that it has to be like matter of fact and everything is this, 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 this. And what it would mean to have some humility about the mystery, right? It's a, this is a mystery. You know, there are parts of it we grasp, but even we don't get it fully. We don't have the fullness of it. Um, and I think people could honor that more because sometimes when we give these ready-made answers, it doesn't sit right with people because it doesn't like capture what's happening. It's like around death and loss and ministers saying things like God needed another voice in his heavenly choir. And people are like, so he needed my mother, right? Like, why did my mother have to be the voice? So, you know, sometimes we think we're being helpful with these little phrases and, you know, to be able to, be able to say like, you know, I don't know why your mom died so young, right? That's, that's painful. Then that, people can sit with that as opposed to me saying, you know, God needed a warrior to cover, <laughs> cover the gate, right? Yeah, I love what you just said, like having humility in the mystery. Like, What a beautiful way to put it. Like that, that sums it up right there. Right. To not think that we know or not to jump to a pat answer. Right. But just just rest and and wrestle and mm-hmm. be okay with being humble in the mystery. What a, what a beautiful way to put that. Yeah. Oh, thank you. It, you know, because I think growing up, it's more like rapid fire of congregants have, you know, they're the sheep, sheep have questions, shepherds have the answers and this is it. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's complicated, especially as you, you know, you, as you say, as you start reading, because one text will say this and one of them, we got old Testament and new Testament. And, you know, is it's not, there is the simplicity of Jesus's love. Cause I know I've definitely heard people say like, you know, the message is simple. Okay. Jesus loves us, right? There's, there are some simple components to it. And then there's some stuff where life hits and it's complicated. And as you're just sharing the Tamar story um, and the Hagar story, uh, I was chatting with my wife and my daughter, she's 15. And we were talking about some, a story in Genesis. The, oh yeah. We're talking about the lot story. Yes. Uh, just recently for a home, like home Bible discussion. Right. Yeah. And what a horrifying story again of I'm like trying to picture as a dad, yes. like Lot as a dad mm-hmm. being uh, so willing to let his daughters be raped in that yeah. story. And it's yeah. just like, I'm like reading the story. And so I'm actually reading the story to my wife and my daughter mm-hmm. and we're talking about this. Yeah. And my wife was like, I don't remember that. What? Mm-hmm. What? It doesn't say that. It, there's no way it says that. I'm like, I'm reading the text. Like, yes. Lot had no problem no. saying, take my daughter, do- rape my daughters, right. essentially. Yes. And horrifying. Horrifying. And they people jump over it, gloss over it, don't tell that part of the story, or just like read it like it's nothing. And it's like, wait, what? Like, what in the world? This is outrageous. And, you know, and to present this crowd as as just being gay, it's like, no, this is like, read read this story. This is not what's happening here. And I just like, oh, you know, so I said, uh, the whole group of them are are men. Like, that's the point. They can just have sex with each other, right? This is about violence, right? Um, Yeah, but it is interesting, as you're saying, as we study the Bible and read it, discovering like which 
either which stories got skipped all together or which stories we only got like parts of. Um, but it's, it is so much deeper. Yeah. And, and it's hard to, and you point this out in your Fuller lecture about when the offender is glorified. Because yeah. we remember the Abrahams, remember mm-hmm. the lots. We talk about the faithfulness, yes, right. Yep. But then you skip over these mm-hmm. uh, evils, these right. these traumatic experiences. And I think what you said about um, using those as jumping off points to have discussion, mm-hmm. like let's not skip over this. Let's right. let's recognize the trauma. Mm-hmm. Let's let's discuss it. Right. That's helpful. Yeah. And I think, you know, even, you know, the story of Vashti, you know, what a courageous woman, you know, when the king demands for her to come into this room full of drunk men, she would be the only woman present. They've been drinking for days and she's supposed to come so that he can show people how beautiful she is. If that's not a setup for some foolishness and she refused to come. And when people try to present that story as if she's a problem. Right. As if like, you know, shame on her when your drunk husband wants to parade you in front of a bunch of drunk men, you need to come. Right. No. And I was and then we had another discussion with my my wife, and my daughter. We we're talking about the, the very famous story of David Mashiba. Yes. And when I read that now, I see a rape story. Yeah. But, but my wife's like, well, not everyone views it as that. Uh-huh. For, for for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But to me, yeah. like, it looks like a rape story. Yes. People will try to present her as a seductress, where that was just where people bathed. They would act like she went in front of him and seduced him. It's like she's in her own living quarters. This is, you know, as I uh, read the text um, and, you know, study the context of the times, where she is bathing is not some like bizarre thing, you know? And uh, so one, he's the, the initiator. And again, it's that issue of consent. When the king calls you, can you honestly say no? You can't. You can't. And then he kills your husband, like intentionally. So uh, even if they don't want to give uh, the title rapist, they would have to give the title murderer but it is interesting how she uh, gets dehumanized in this experience. Um, people don't want to pay attention to power, right? That was the other part I was going to say. Even if you want to say that she was on her roof to try to seduce him, it again buys into this narrative of, of men not having um, authority over their, their themselves, Right. So any woman who displays herself and you have to have sex with her, so that's the mentality that goes again to like women are the problem, you know, and that men are trying to be holy. And these women are just out here luring them in, drawing them away from God. Um, so then he's, he's somehow like the victim, which is really problematic. But of course, you know, who does that benefit? Who, who benefits from that narrative? is all the men who cheat on their wives. And, you know, he has multiple options available to him. And, you know, <laughs> that, so, you know, really is a, a power dynamic. Yeah, I think that that power dynamic is, is, is interesting because we see power abused in so many ways. Um, you know, just right now thinking about the Harvey Weinstein situation 
and just the abuse of power. I'm thinking about the recent uh, Rabbi Zacharias situation where you have this like church leader slash evangelist who's known globally. And I want to ask you about like, what is wrong with these like systems in our churches where people get elevated to this point where they think that they can do whatever they want. Mm -hmm. They can abuse people. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about like these systems that are creating these villains, these, these tyrants. How do we like, what are these systems and how do we begin to like break them down? Yeah. So what becomes the idol is talent and money. So if you are a talented uh, speaker, leader, what have you, then our church is successful and we don't want to mess with success or you get a free pass. Like we feel the need to protect you because you're the special sauce, right? You're the one that's helping us all to win. Um, and so a part of that can get translated um, also to um, the greed, right? If you're a successful pastor, you're bringing in the people and then you're bringing in the money. So you're this charismatic person. We get rid of you. Maybe we have a history with some other pastors that weren't so charismatic. And so the money wasn't coming in. The people weren't coming in. And so um, we either believe it but want to protect you because we want to, quote unquote, protect the institution or we find it unbelievable. Um, I think that for some people, they see the gift or we we would say like the anointing and assume anointing means character, right? Like how could it be so powerful when this person does what they do unless God is with them? And if God is with them, they wouldn't be doing these horrible things that people are lying about. So, you know, they become very protective because it doesn't equate. Like there's no way you could do what this, what she said and get up there and preach with that kind of power. Just no way, right? So it becomes you know, yeah, it's unbelievable to us. And that goes also with the assumption or stereotype that we could tell an abuser by looking at them. It's like, oh, if they have the trench coat and they're looking all sneaky, then it's like, now that's a pedophile, right? But if you're shiny, smiley, warm, or, you know, successful, you know, that's not a pedophile. So we have to get past uh, these ideas we have of what it looks like and also, um, you know, stop, you know, promoting these messages that if you say something uh, critical, a critique of someone who's in power in a, in a religious space, that you're talking against God. That's not God. That's a person. Um, and so it, it is helpful, I will say, when there are uh, churches that have some kind of checks and balances, but it also means that often those places have to have training. It's like uh, in our denomination, it hasn't always been, but they had to start doing trainings on sexual harassment um, because I think it is so easy for people to take advantage. You know, you know, in most churches, the pastors are men, most of the volunteers are women, and there's this whole thing of like, what does pastor need? Let me, I got to bring pastor the food. I got to do this for pastor, do that for pastor. And um, a lot of times in seminary, there's a warning to men to look out for women who will try to destroy their ministry, but not really 
a conversation with them about not abusing their power? What what is the line, the limit of asking too much of people, even if they're willing to do it? Right. That. um, Yeah, there is a there is definite communication. Don't be seduced. But there is not message about not preying on your members. Wow, that's that's really powerful. And I I think that that is something that definitely needs to be in the seminaries. That's getting addressed for sure. Um, and as you're as you're chatting about that, I'm just thinking about trauma survivors that are in our churches. And you said this um, kind of midway, how some people are just not equipped to walk with trauma survivors. They're just not. They don't have the empathy. They don't have the the background uh, mm-hmm. to be able to walk and and do that journey. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if maybe you can talk a little bit about um, if someone you build a relationship with somebody at church mm-hmm. and they gain enough trust in you to share their trauma with you mm-hmm. because they feel that you are trusted, which is a huge honor. Yeah. How, and I guess. I don't know how to phrase this, but basically like what are your recommendations on how to respond in the most loving, mm-hmm. empathic way Yeah, and what should never be said right. in those moments? Great. Yeah, great question. So what to say um, is to thank them for being willing to trust you with their story. And um, if they are not a child to assure them, of your, that you're going to keep it in confidence. Um, you know, of course, with children, we have duties to, to act. Um, but with an adult to just say, um, I so appreciate you sharing that with me. And I'm sure it's not something you share with everyone. And then uh, to give yourself permission to take in the pain of what it is they're sharing. Because I think sometimes if we're uncomfortable with uh, emotion, we'll try to like jump to wanting to be their cheerleader and not really taking it in. And I will say as both a therapist and as a survivor, it is really therapeutic when you can feel that your story landed with someone. Like that they don't have the fullness of it, but when it registers like in their eyes, in their heart of like, Uh, What I say to my students in our psychology program is you are the thermometer in the room because many people have been in situations where people try to pretend what happened to them wasn't a big deal. And so if we try to look blank, professional, Christ-like aura, then it's like communicating is whatever you just said is not a big deal. And what I want to communicate is it is, right? That that should not have happened. Um, And so we're communicating belief communicating compassion, um, asking them, is there any way that you can be helpful to them? And that may vary of like, if it just happened then, um, or if it happened a long time ago, one of the ways of being helpful can be um, helping uh, get people look for referrals for people to get into counseling. And I would say even that for pastors, you know, you can do the pastoral care and still give them like the green light to get counseling along with the pastoral part. So the prayers and scripture and and encouragement help, but there's also a process um, that will be helpful for people. Um, And then um, I would say uh, sometimes people need an advocate. Um, 
you know, our support person if they're needing to make decisions. So for example, if, if you're in that person's family and they tell you another member of the family did it, that you have an understanding of why um, holidays are uncomfortable for them or how come they always don't show up. As I saw a quote online the other day, if the, if the abuser is welcome, the victim is not. Okay? And it depends on where people are in their process. Some people, it was years ago and they go for these family gatherings and they're just able to kind of compartmentalize. And then for other people, um, that's why they can't be there. So it either means if they want to be there, that you're going to sit with them, support them, that they know there's somebody in the family who believes them and has their back. Or if they choose not to be there, that part of the holiday you're going to spend with them. So like, why should the victim have to be alone while everybody is with the abuser? So, you know, to say Thanksgiving, do you want to do lunch or Easter dinner or what have you so that people aren't isolated? And then I'll just say in terms of things not to say are, you know, are you sure or, oh, I don't believe that. Um, or, you know, you just have to give it to Jesus. Um, have you forgiven them? You know, that's what you need to do is forgive them. Um, and if you, you know, if you don't forgive them, God's mad at, you know, God is mad at you because you're unforgiving. And that's why your life is terrible because you haven't, you know, all of this heaping uh, weight on their shoulders instead of helping to take the load off. Mm, That's so, so beautiful and so helpful. And I know we're up at our hour. Um, so I want to thank you so much for your time. Um, I have, I have like a hundred thousand more questions for you. (laughs) I know we have one hour, so I want to thank you, Dr. Dama for coming on the show. For those that want to know about your podcast and your writings, what's the best way for them to reach out to you? Yes. So I have enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much for the invitation. And um, my podcast is called Homecoming, and it is on YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Um, And I'm excited that I am working on a book that's based on the podcast that will be out March of next year. Um, You can also, yeah, I'm excited about that. And um, you can follow me on social media. On Twitter, it's Dr. Tama, D-R-T-H-E-M-A. And on Instagram, it's Dr. Period Tama, T-H-E-M-A. So thank you so much for having me and for the thoughtful questions. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation with Dr. Tama Bryant-Davis on ways to read our Bibles through the lens of trauma. Make sure to check out her video series, her podcast, and other helpful resources on her website. Simply go to drtama.com. That's spelled D-R-T-H-E-M-A. So how is this conversation on ways to understand our Bible through this lens of trauma impacting you? Let me know by messaging me on Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, or Twitter at Delgado Podcast. You can also reach me on my blog at MikeDelgado.org. Next time, we're going to learn from Dr. Lamar Hardwick about his new book entitled Disability and the Church, published by InterVarsity Press. He talks with us about ways our churches sometimes create obstacles for those of us with disabilities and talks specifically about the ways that the church can better include and serve our neurodiverse believers. Dr. Hardwick is known as the autism pastor on social media and shares ways autism has enabled him to make his church more inclusive and accessible. So that's next time. 
And if you found this podcast helpful in any way, please let me know by rating the show on iTunes and or leaving a comment. Your vote can help this show get more visibility. Thank you so much. Take care. And we'll chat more next time.